Uh, Isaiah 53, so like that seems like a random place to choose for Easter. It's actually one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. And I, I, like I told you, I'm a science teacher, and I'm kind of a critical thinker. Uh, I'm kind of a skeptic. And so when I first became a Christian, I needed proof. I needed evidence uh, to support what I believed. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stuck with it. Um, and so as a scientist, as, and I'm not really a scientist, as a science teacher, uh, you know, I, the longer I've taught science, the more I've studied science, the more I see this um, interesting perception people have in our culture that like, oh, you're, I mean, I have students every year, you're a science teacher, but you're a Christian. How? That's not possible. And uh, it's really an interesting um, dynamic in our culture that people have kind of believed like somehow there's science and there's God and they're totally separate. And, and for me and for people who are thinking people who love God and who want to understand it all, it, it just, it's totally in harmony. And so, you know, as I look for evidence to support the Christian faith, one, one big point that I would use would be science. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have much time to talk about that today. But just, just as an example, um, the universe, we know that the universe is getting further away from itself. And so if you just hit the rewind button and bring it back, there had to be a beginning to the universe. That's humongous right there. Uh, and there's lots of great quotes by uh, physicists who, who say basically something to the effect of, we've been searching and searching, and we climbed this mountain, and we found the theologians already up there. And it, the other idea that was out there before was that the universe just was static. It just kind of stood there, like the earth just seems to be here, right? But as you take the universe backwards in time, you actually discover there, there was a, a single point that it all occupied. And so that is a humongous uh, help to those who believe in God because if you have a creation with a beginning, you have to have a creator. If you have, if you have a beginning, you have to have a beginner. And I mean, I could go off about science for a long time, but I'm, that's just one part of, part of the evidence that brings me confidence uh, that God exists. Um, another thing would be archaeology. And you could look at the re- resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event that's supported by lots of archaeological evidence, and that would be another great place to look. But today what I'm actually going to talk about is a third one. And there's probably five or six or seven good routes of evidence uh, to support the Christian faith. But what I'm actually going to talk about today is prophecy. Um, so Isaiah 53, people talk about prophecies as like mountains, in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, you know, you kind of like, when you read the New Testament, it's just like rich, like every word you can hang on. As you read through the Old Testament, you're kind of like mining for gold. And you, you know, some of this stuff you don't understand, how is this relevant to me? But as, as you study through prophecies of the Old Testament, it's sort of like mountains, sort of like how we have the Sisters Mountain Range over here in the Cascades. And there's Genesis chapter 22. That's probably the first mountain in the Old Testament. And you could go read that one and see the parallels to to Jesus and Abraham offering his son and how God gave his only son. And I mean, it's an incredible chapter, one of the highest peaks of the Old Testament. You could could read Psalm 22, another one where David just says so many things. I'm even going to quote from it a little bit today. But probably the Mount Everest of the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most detailed description of the, the suffering and the atonement that Jesus went through. And it's written 
like a thousand years before Jesus was born. And, and so people, like, historically have thought, oh, it must have been, it must have been changed. You know, I, you hear that sometimes from people like, oh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, they changed the whole Bible. Well, that's not true. And uh, we can't go into why right now, but we have original ma- or copies of original manuscripts, and, and there's plenty of evidence that that's not true. But, but uh, there's something else that verifies Isaiah chapter 53. And it was discovered, I think, just 100 years ago or so. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this, this, this uh, shepherd boy was actually throwing rocks into caves by the Dead Sea. And he heard this clash of pottery. And he climbed up in there and he found all these old manuscripts that had been left there by Jews who were living there hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And they've dated the pottery, they've dated the manuscripts, um, and they know these Dead Sea Scrolls are pre-Christ. And they've got Isaiah 53 in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 100% for sure, was written before Jesus ever existed. And so we're going to go through this chapter, and it is incredible that all this stuff is written about this Messiah, and then that the Jews didn't even realize this is who their Messiah would be. They still today, as a nation, reject him. And, uh, and so we're going to get through this now. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that, that's, a, that's a question that we still need to ponder today. As, as Christians, we can share this. this. This word report could also be translated message. And so, who, have you believed the message? Have you believed the message about Jesus Christ? And I'm going to get into this message today. And I want to I ask you that first and foremost. Have you believed this message? You should be asking yourself this today while I'm speaking, okay? Um, and it's possible, it's possible to, like, believe something in a way that you agree with it. Like, yeah, like George Washington, he existed as a human person on the earth, was the first president. It's possible to believe something in your mind, but not to have believed it in a way that it, like, changes you. And, and uh, James says in the book of James, like, yeah, well, even the demons believe this message about Jesus or who God is. But it doesn't change them. And their behavior. And we know from reading the New Testament that if you put your faith in Jesus to be saved, to believe this message in a way that you could be saved, it has to change you. There's going to be a change in you if you've believed in him in a way that it, it saved you. And so I want to be asking you, even first verse, is that something you've experienced? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, so it's interesting, there's this place to believe it, but there's also this place for it to be revealed to you. And uh, Matthew 16, go ahead and bring up that passage. So this is, this is an example of when someone had it revealed to them who God is. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? And so that, that's the question I'm asking you today. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter responds to him. He always steps out in faith. Go ahead and go to the next verse, 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Keep going. He, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so it's not enough to say like, oh, well, my, my grandma says Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, you know. It's not enough that you know who people say he is. 
Who do you personally say that he is? And he says that again. Who do you say that I am? Go ahead, verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Go ahead, 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is teaching like, there is a spiritual revelation that has to come upon a person for them to really truly get it and, and believe. And I had, this, I had this friend in college, and I had, the, I had just learned this, and, and I'd been a Christian for maybe a few months, and he was kind of a skeptic. He was a, a biology major like me, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and he understood the message, and he was just, you know, I don't know. Is this really true? And I said, well, you know what? Let's pray about it. Let's pray that if it's true, God will show it to you. And I didn't know what, you know, I don't know where I learned that idea, but somebody had suggested that, and I was like, here, let's try this. And so we prayed in my dorm, or not, it wasn't in my dorm, it was my sophomore year, so I was in an apartment uh, with some other guys, and we prayed right there, and he prayed, and I prayed that God would reveal it to him if it were true. And uh, about three days later, you know, he didn't just stop there, he, he came to Bible studies, he pursued Jesus, you know, and maybe for you, like, yeah, I don't know if this Jesus stuff is true. If, if that's all you're going to do, if that's all the effort you're going to give it, you know, you're not going to find out who Jesus is. But if Jesus said, if you knock, the door will be opened. You ask and you will receive. I, I forget the progression there, but, but there's a progression of like search, ask. I think it's ask, search, knock when you get there. And so we, by praying, we were sort of knocking. And, and, and my friend Matt, he, he, he kept looking into Jesus and we were about three days later, we're in a Bible study. And at the end of Bible study, we're just praying. And after we prayed at the end of our little time of devotion with a bunch of guys in the room, uh, Matt just opens his eyes, and he's like in tears. And he's like, God showed me who he is. And Matt, Matt had like a spiritual awakening to who God was in that moment. He's, he's been following Jesus ever since. And that's, that's something you have to experience, too, if you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to follow him. Jesus said to Nicodemus, like, the wind blows where it wants, and so it is as the Spirit moves. Like, is the Spirit moving on you this morning? Is the Spirit moving in your heart to have you believe in Jesus and put your faith in him? It's not enough just to have a head knowledge of who he is. You have to personally put your faith in him. So let's keep going. Um, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And so Jesus, Jesus was just a nobody. Um, it, it keeps going. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was a nobody. Uh, John 146. Uh, I think it's Nathan. Yeah. Nathan says to Philip when they're talking about Jesus for the first time, Nathan says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, Jesus was a nobody. He came from Nazareth. Like, who comes from Nazareth? It'd be like people in Prineville, you know, and somebody important is like, Prineville? Like, you know? But that's who God uses. He uses nobodies, right? Like, he could take you guys. He could take your children out of Prineville, and he could make another Billy Graham out of them. You know, he can move with, and that's who he likes to use, nobodies. And so that's who Jesus was. We see that. Um, and Jesus comes 
uh, in a very dry time. He grew up out of dry ground. And spiritually and politically, it was a very dry time when Jesus was born. Uh, they were the Jews. This was written to the Jewish people. And, and if you don't know, Jesus was Jewish, and, and he's the Jewish Messiah. And Jesus came to the Jews in a time when they'd been um, under Roman occupation for a long time. There had been no prophets, no books of the Bible were being written by any prophets or anything like that. It was Spiritually, it was a, kind of a dead time. And that's, that's how all of us are, though, too. We're all dead and dry But Jesus comes, and he says, John 7, 37 and 38, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Go ahead to 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's what Jesus wants to do in you through the Spirit. He wants you to put your faith in him in a way that the Spirit comes into you, the very Spirit of God. And in another place it says he'll be like a fountain welling up within you. Like spiritually, we're all dry and dead without Jesus. But when the Spirit of God comes into you, he brings life. And that's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus was when he came. Verse 3. So we see this Messiah who's a nobody coming to a spiritually dead generation. And rather than... You know, you would think, like, if you knew the Old Testament, you would think, and the Jews thought, like, this Messiah is going to come. He's going to kill all the Romans. We're going to take over politically again. And that's who they believed, as Jews, that's who they believed their Messiah would be. Because that's what his second coming will be like. But at his first coming, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And so uh, John 1, 10 through 11, this is exactly how it went down. John says, this is in the New Testament now, after Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's God. He's the creator. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This Messiah was prophesied. It was prophesied that he would be rejected. And that's exactly what happened. And he was a man of sorrows. Go ahead, bring up that Matthew 23 passage. This is Jesus speaking. This is the sorrow that Jesus has, uh, the grief that he understands as a man on the earth who's also God incarnate. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He looks out at the nation. Uh, The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. If God is moving in you today, you have to be willing to respond to that. And Jesus, it grieved him that that the nation of Israel was rejecting him. It was prophesied this would happen, but it still brought him grief. And it grieves God that people in our city, in our country, they know the message of Jesus And they reject the message of Jesus. Don't let that be you today. And then we go to verse 4, and there's really a turn now. So he's rejected by the world, but surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And now today, you know, if you know anything about Christianity, today it's like, oh yeah, let's talk about Jesus. You know, bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. And and it's going to get even more detailed. But to see this prophecy in the Old Testament, 
describing a man taking the sins of the world for the people, like that is unheard of in the Old Testament. That was not what the Old Testament was about. And here we have it in the Old Testament, written thousands of a thousand years before Jesus came. It's incredible. This is, I mean, this is absolutely remarkable that this is written in the Old Testament, telling of Jesus who's coming. And just, just wait as it gets more detailed. Um, but he was wounded for our transgressions. So let's just stop on that part right there. He was wounded for our transgressions. That word wounded, I looked at different translations, New Living, NIV, NASB. That word could also be translated pierced. And all those translations I just listed actually describe it as pierced. Uh, He was pierced for our transgressions. If you read Psalm 22, 16, here's an amazing prophecy. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregations of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced by crucifixion. This was written like 2,000 years before Jesus existed. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. And um, Zechariah 12.10, bring that one up. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one who grieves for the firstborn. Incredible prophecy. Um, just, I don't think the whole chapter is a prophecy, but there's a peak right there. Like, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn as one for a firstborn. Jesus, God's only begotten son. The firstborn over all creation. This, this idea that Jesus is going to be pierced is in this passage. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. And that word bruised is also translated beaten and crushed by different translations. And so you, get, you start to get a sense of what the word really means when you get three or four of the translations. So it's a bruising, but it's also just a destroying of something. And Jesus was tied to a scourging post. And if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you've seen this horrific scene uh, of Jesus scourging that is almost worse than the crucifixion itself. He died fairly quickly on the cross because of how badly he was beaten. And um, he he didn't just get crucified for us. He was beaten for us. And they would use this thing called a flagella, which was a whip. And it would have chunks of glass and bone and metal in it. And the Romans would beat the backs of criminals with this thing, and they were tied to a a post. And they would beat them 40 times, and usually 39 as an act of mercy. And while they beat them, um, ribbons of flesh would just be opened up on the back of these people. And so as as we read this word word crushed, beaten, um, Jesus took an incredible beating. I'll go into that more in a minute. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Uh, or sorry, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, is the New King James. And then you can leave that NIV up. Uh, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And that word peace is remarkable. Uh, because Jesus is how we have peace with God. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. This is a substitutionary act. So we start to see in verse 5, that it wasn't, he wasn't being punished and um, stricken. We thought, you know, the Jews thought he was getting what he deserved. 
You know, as, as he was being crucified, the Jews would cry out, you know, in favor of this. They thought he deserved it because he had claimed to be God and, and they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. But verse 5, it even tells us that this, this beating that he took was for our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. Iniquities and transgressions are big words that mean sin. And um, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. You know, Jesus wasn't beaten because of anything he had done. He was beaten because of what we have done. There's historically been sort of a controversy on, like, who, who deserves the blame for killing Christ? You know, is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? And I remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, um, you know, Mel, Mel Gibson, people thought he was maybe, like, anti-Semitic and stuff. And, and I remember, you know, I don't know much about Mel Gibson. I'm not sure he's the most, you know, uh, noble guy that you should look, look up to. But I remember Mo, Mel Gibson totally got it right. He said, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the Romans, it was me. And in that scene in The Passion of the Christ, when they put the nail in his hand, Mel Gibson's hand is the hand holding that nail on his hand. And he wanted it to be his hand. And, you know, Jesus died because of us. It was all of us. It was, it was our iniquities. It was our uh, transgressions. And, but he willingly went to the cross for us. Um, and he did it so that we could have peace. Bring up Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace with God because of what Jesus did. Go ahead, Colossians 1.20. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And then it says, um, by his stripes we are healed. And, and the good, there's a version of the Bible called the Good News Translation, sort of a paraphrase. The Good News Translation translates this, we are made whole by the blows he received. This is, this is in the Old Testament. This is the, probably the most detailed passage of the atonement in the entire Bible, and it's written in the Old Testament. Verse 6, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This idea of substitution, that Jesus could take the punishment we deserve. Jesus is in the garden, you know, just to give you a sense of how intense this was. You know, God, like I think of this passage in Philippians, I didn't prepare it, but, you know, it's something to the, Philippians chapter 2, I think, is, um, you know, God who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or cling on to it but made himself nothing and took on uh, the form of a servant. So like Jesus, could you imagine? I mean, just, just imagine this. You're God, okay? Like we can't imagine that. We just don't get it, right? But can you imagine the glory that he was in with the Father and the Holy Spirit and this triune, one God um, community that he exists in as God? And he decides, you know what? I love these creatures that I made. I love them so much that I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to give off my divine superpower, you know, and I'm going to become a man. Just that alone had to be just so humbling, you know, naked as a baby, you know, totally dependent on other people. It's called the incarnation, like in flesh, carn, like carne, you know, like 
Spanish word for meat. He became flesh. And that alone was incredible. But then he, he didn't even, beca- you know, if I was God and I was going to become a human, I would become the best human. I would be born probably immediately as a man, a grown man, but at least into a rich king's family, right? But he becomes a nobody. And then he doesn't just live and have everyone pamper him. He goes to the cross. He, he chooses death willingly for people as our substitute. And he's in, so this is a choice that he made because he loves us. The Bible says that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. So Jesus, the father gave the son willingly, and Jesus said at one point, you know, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down. He, he did this, and he's in the garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion, and he knows what's coming. And I don't think it was the beating that he was afraid of. I don't think it was the torture that he was afraid of. But he knew he was going to be separated from the Father. And he's praying in the garden, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass. And this cup, I'd never studied this until this week. Bring up, uh, what, it, what is this cup that he's talking about? Bring up Psalm 75, 8. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. And he pours out the wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it into the dregs. Go ahead, bring up uh, Jeremiah twenty-five, fifteen. This metaphor is all over the Old Testament, and it's in the Revelation. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger. Another translation is fury. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. There is, you know, God is so loving. We hear that message. But there's also a side to God that he is totally just. And wrong actions are insults to his holiness. And he can't help but judge sin. And so there is this dam full of liquid that represents our sin, okay? And, and I, I heard another preacher describe it this way, so I was going to show you guys a couple of things. There was a flood. Sorry, I'm going to go into science teacher mode for a second. There was a fl- So I, I really like the young earth creationists. There's, there's other groups. There's old earth creationists, theistic evolutionists. You can believe what you want about that, but, but I really like to listen to the young earth guys. And the young earth view is that there was a single ice age after the flood. And whether you're young earth or old earth, you think there's, ice, there's been an ice age. And so there was this giant flood. Maybe you've learned about this already. Just, this is just after. Like there was a global flood, right? But then just after the flood, there was like some lakes that were kind of big that just released all at once. And so there was this uh, glacial Lake Missoula. And it was blocked by an ice dam. You see it up there by number one, in between number one and number three. And this ice dam was a glacier that was holding back this giant lake the size of, you know, a big chunk of Montana. And, and, you know, there's different ideas. Maybe, like, the, the glacier suddenly lifted or maybe it melted and then it just kind of all broke loose. But you can travel across eastern Washington. Go ahead to the next picture. And they call this area the Scablands, where this, they believe this giant flood just ripped apart the earth. Chunks, I mean, there's these boulders, I didn't put one in there, but there's these boulders called erratics that are like the size of houses. And they think they were just uh, frozen in, in glaciers. And then they, they landed and melted, and now you have this giant erratic boulder in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, you know, 
chunks of ice the size of houses, uh, just rapid amounts of water. Uh, like they think that Lake Missoula was maybe 800, 900 feet at its highest point. And all at once, it opened up and drained out across eastern Washington, just tore the earth apart. Keep going. You can see the, the ripples of the water. That's more of the scablands. Go to the next picture. And then it, it got into a funnel. And that's what formed the Columbia River Gorge, was just this tear. I mean, I was just there. I was thinking about this because I was just there for a tennis match this week. And, I mean, just imagine the amount of water it would take to just tear out, gouge out the Columbia River Gorge all at once. And so, cool stuff, science, yeah. Um, So Jesus, when he drinks that cup of God's wrath, uh, I think I love this. It's like we're standing there in front of that glacial dam that's blocking Lake Missoula, and the thing breaks, and all this water is coming at us. It's the wrath of God that we deserve. And Jesus steps in front of us, and he drinks up every last drop of it and takes it for us. Only he's capable of that. And then he takes that cup, and he sets it down, and he says, it is finished. He has paid the price for us. He has drank every last drop of God's wrath for us as a substitution. He's the only one who could do this, being fully God and fully man. And so verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And this is, this is going back to like Passover and, and the Jewish tradition of killing a lamb in place of people. And you see this metaphor in the Old Testament as a prophecy. They would take a lamb and they would kill it. I mean, the very first place you see this, all, this is the whole Old Testament's about Jesus. The very first place you see an animal sacrificed is Adam and Eve. The very first sin comes into the world and God kills an animal and covers them with it to make uh, atonement for their sin. And, and you just see this repeated idea of substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. And then you get to Passover, and they kill, this is the first time it's a lamb. Uh, although, although in that uh, passage of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham prophesies, God will provide himself a lamb, but then he, he actually provides a ram. And so the, the lamb is still coming, and the lamb shows up in Passover, and they kill this lamb, and they, they mark the wood with a cross, um, And the blood of the lamb in the shape of the cross causes God's wrath to go past everybody and does not strike their family. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. John says in the New Testament, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it's interesting that it mentions that as a sheep, before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When he was being scourged and beaten, 40 lashes. The Romans would beat the criminals so that they would confess every sin they'd ever committed against Rome. But Jesus had no sin to confess. He was without sin. So he didn't open his mouth. So the beating, I can imagine the beating got harder and more aggressive as those Roman soldiers wanted to produce a confession out of him. But as a sheep before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. You know, I can't remember where that passage is, but there's a passage, I think it's in the Old Testament that says Jesus was like marred more than any other man. Like he, 
you know, the, I think maybe part of the reason when, when he appeared again after his resurrection, his disciples didn't recognize him, it might be just because he was so badly scarred. I mean, he still had those wounds in his hands and his side that Thomas would stick his fingers in. Like, he's going to be different. He's going to look different because of the beating that he took on the cross. And, and you know, Pilate, Pilate says, behold the man. Like, this was a man after his scourging. Pilate puts him before the, the Jews again. This was a man. He didn't confess anything. He opened not his mouth. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? And so he's, he's going to die in the prime of his life. Now we're seeing he's beaten and he's, and he's tortured. And now he's going to be killed. And he would have no descendants. That's what this passage says in verse 8. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He's dead. For the transgressions of my people. There it is again. Atonement. Substitution. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And so, not only does it describe that he would take the punishment that we deserve, it describes uh, even the fact that he was crucified with the wicked. He was going to be put into a common uh, tomb with, with everybody. But then suddenly, with the rich at his death. And go ahead, bring up Matthew 27. Uh, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who him, himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Keep going. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given him. Go ahead, 59. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So Jesus, although he was going to be buried with the common criminals that he was crucified next to, this, this Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, came and actually gave him his tomb, a rich man's tomb. And that was prophesied, prophesied here. And you can, this is, I've never been to Israel, but I've studied a lot. Go ahead and bring up the pictures I have of, of this garden tomb. They think um, they found the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in. It. And there's like a, I think there's a church built around it or something. Uh, in Jerusalem. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising that it, that it would be, you know, something that would have been kept special. And th- you can see there's like a rim of rock where that step is. And there's actually a spot there for a, a stone, like a thin stone that had been cut to be rolled in front of the entrance. And then go to the next picture. And there's a really interesting thing about this tomb. Um, it was cut for a certain man, but then hastily, a little bit more was cut out on each end. Like the guy who was buried in it wasn't the guy who it was made for. Like they just had to get the rock out really quick. And um, so maybe that's the tomb Jesus was buried in. Um, but we know that he was buried in, a, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Um, okay, keep going here. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And, and so you can bring up that Second Corinthians 5 passage. And they made his grave, oh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, so this is as good a place any to mention this, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is what the New Testament writers say about Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus taking our place on the cross, and now we see uh, the point of it all in verse 10. Yet it 
pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The first thing, you know, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Like, why would God want to do this to his own son? You know, and I, I looked up the word uh, propitiation. Go ahead, bring up First, first John 2.2. 2. And he himself, this is another New Testament writer talking about Jesus. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation, it, it means like to appease or to satisfy. God was not pleased by what he had to do to Jesus, to, to, for Jesus to take our sin on himself and, and drink that cup of the wrath of God. But God is very pleased by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That he, he satisfied the debt that we owe. Nothing that was done to Jesus was done to Jesus because he deserved it. It was done to Jesus because we deserve it. And, and you make his, his soul an offering for sin, he shall see. Now, this is where the passage turns. An Old Testament passage that now is going to describe someone who comes back to life. He, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so we see, we see a simple man who's going to die for the sins of the people, who's going to have a rich man's grave. And somehow he's going to see his seed and, and you'll see in the next verse, I think, more about his descendants. And how is this possible? Because Jesus didn't have any children. But the passage is talking about his spiritual family. Go ahead and bring up John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. Jesus has a tremendous number of descendants not physical children, but spiritual children or spiritual brothers and sisters because of what he did on the cross. Uh, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. We can have the worship team come on up. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he's poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, and it says there, he bore the sin of many. I think there's another place just before where it mentions many. He shall justify, my, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. It doesn't say all. There are people, maybe people in this room, who the, the justification of Jesus, the atonement, the, the substitutionary death that he took in your place, they're not going to respond to it. But that doesn't have to be you today. You can, you can put your faith in Jesus this morning, this Easter Sunday, 2019. You can put your faith in Jesus in a way that you could be born again by the Spirit of God. You could be saved. And, and don't be like the Jews that Jesus looked out at them and he mourned for them because they would not turn to him. God wants you to turn to him this morning if you've never put your faith in him. So we're going to have um, a few leaders come forward. Kevin, 
Uh, I don't remember who I talked to this morning, but a few of you guys that I talked to and a couple of their wives are going to be here up front. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus in a way that you could be born again by the Spirit of God this morning, we want to offer that to you. And, and you know, maybe you're, maybe you're a believer and you just haven't been walking with the Lord and you just want to get back on track with him. Come forward, pray with one of our uh, members up here. But don't waste, guys, what Jesus did for you on that cross. Just, let's just pray. God, um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross. God, thank you for your arms that are wide open to us. Saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you're out there today and you want that rest that Jesus offers, if you want that living water inside of you, ask God for it. If you're too scared to come in front of some people and pray with somebody, I prayed and asked God to be my Savior in a dorm room bathroom by myself on the floor because I didn't want to go and get noticed. Go. Go ahead, just pray right in your seat. Ask the Lord Jesus, take my sin, take my punishment. Lord, you did that for me. You didn't open your mouth because you didn't sin, but you took that punishment for me. You stepped in front of me and took the wrath of God and you drank every last drop of it. Claim that. Claim that to be yours this morning. We're going to have some leaders up front. And I encourage you, even if you've prayed that, come forward. Make that known. You don't, as Christians, we don't exist on an island. We're supposed to be in community with each other. So if, if you want to put your faith in Jesus in a way that you could be saved this morning, come forward. Pray with us. Let us, let us identify that you have done that. And come and join. Be a part of what we're doing in this church. Go ahead, Adam. Adam.